0: Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us Jonathan O'Brien. He's an attorney in New York City, and he has filed a lawsuit in the state of Nevada that I think uh, First Things Readers, listeners, ought to hear about. Welcome, Mr. O'Brien. It's nice to
1: be here. I believe this is my first podcast ever.
0: Well, um... I'm going to try to uh, make a good first impression on you. Thank you. Let's go. <laughs> okay. Now, I have the document of the lawsuit in, in front of me that I, I received a couple of weeks ago. But why don't you tell us exactly what laws have the defendants in this lawsuit broken? And what, what contracts have they violated?
1: Well, that's a good question because uh, everyone should get out a pad and pencil because everyone knows someone who has a case like this. Laws implicated in our case are Title Six of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and that has to do with largely race discrimination. Any institution receiving state or federal funding, which is pretty much everybody, yeah. can't promote or discriminate based on race. So, Title Six of the Civil Rights Act. The next one is Title Nine. Which is modeled after Title VI. It came a little later. And it has to do with educational institutions largely. It has to do with sex and gender. Um, And then you go, and then you move on to the big ones the Bill of Rights. Mm -hmm. There's First Amendment, which is free speech. And that has all different permutations like government can't restrict speech, but it also can't compel speech. Mm -hmm. So compelled speech is a big factor in our case because the student, the K through 12 student was compelled to number one, announce his racial, sexual, gender, religious, and disability identities in a non-private classroom setting. Number one. And number two, he was then required to label those identities in a non descriptive, normative uh, way with predetermined labels supplied by the teacher and school curriculum. And those labels included privilege and oppressed. And then the teacher and the school defined privileged in, and oppressed in a morally loaded, derogatory, pejorative way. So those acts, those exercises were repeated and also graded, which adds to the compulsory nature of the compelled speech there. Mm -hmm. It also, also implicates invasion of privacy because these are intimate matters dealing with sex, gender, race, and adolescence, and that inquiry is manipulative, unnecessary, serves no legitimate state purpose, and that is a violation of the First Amendment, also the 14th Amendment, also probably a host of uh, state laws. Yep. Um, but let's keep it federal.
0: Yeah. How old was the, how old was the student? What, what grade was he in? He was a senior, senior
1: in high school, and that gets to the severity of the situation in that he's applying to colleges right now. Um, And the school destroyed his academic record in the process of this because they failed him for this class and they wouldn't allow him to to take an alternative class.
0: So this was the, the compulsions, the identity declarations. These took place. They were not part of a like an extracurricular program. It was a part of a required course entitled Sociology of Change, correct?
1: Yes. It was a standard exercise that you're seeing across the country. You see it in employment situations with you know, diversity training, anti-racism training, all that stuff. You see it in other schools. It's a confessional exercise, and the school masked it as just part of a civics class. And you'll see that again and again in other cases. Seldom do schools say what they're doing, even in their literature that describes the class. So if a parent requests the syllabus, the homework assignments, the parent, the parent will receive a very generic description of the class that will give no indication of what's actually going on. And uh, so that's how it works. In our case, it's how it works in other cases, and that's what I'm seeing. Very deceptive, manipulative, and parents are kept in the dark about it, which is why in our case, it's not just the boy who's bringing claims. It's also the mother, and your listeners should um, realize that, that it's often not just the child that has claims, possibly. The parents have parental rights. To control and guide the upbringing of their children and the state can not interfere with that through hook crook or disguise or manipulation and that's uh that's the parental rights claim falls under the 14th amendment there's interesting case law it goes back 80 years so the mother brought
0: her own claims now in this sociology for change sociology of change Class, yeah. The kids, as you say, these are standard exercises. Uh, you have to declare your identity, and then you have to rank your identity on the levels of privilege uh, that you that you possess. It's 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 a terribly intrusive, unpleasant exercise. How? Who are the people? I mean, what what kind of personality wants to lead this? And I I can't imagine having kids stand up and and say tell me about your white privilege. It 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 seems to me terribly coercive.
1: Well, uh, right, and let's always keep in mind that it's these identities aren't restricted to white. It's not white black, and this isn't an anti white reverse discrimination case. Right, because the labeling happens for genders for sexualities, for religious identities, for disabilities, it runs the table. And we say all this in, in our lawsuit. And you know, if you particularly with sex and gender, these are adolescents. Um is there a more intimate, delicate subject than um sexuality and gender in an adolescent, in an adolescent boy? And you're going to prostitute that subject by bringing it to light in some politicized classroom setting where everyone is looking on. And the creepy thing in our case is who was looking on. These sessions were recorded and defendants admitted to us that other school administrators would tune in and uh to these exercises and that's described in in our complaint
0: now the sociology of change class wasn't the only experience that your client had there was also a project-based class under the terrifying title change the world i think i would stay a hundred miles away from any course with that name but that was it Change the world what went on in that class
1: according to the written description of the project-based class in the syllabus, it seems like a nice idea. And my the clients don't object to it in theory. It looks like the Eagle Scout Boy Scout project where students have to do some project-based endeavor to help the community. And that's all right. And we don't have any, any problem with it as described. The problem is is that it's taught by the same teacher who subjected the client to racial harassment, sexual harassment, in the form of these manipulative, invasive identity exercises and much else. So the idea that he should return to this project-based class under the aegis of the same teacher, is obtuse, grotesque, and it just shows the obliviousness on the part of the school, if not, you know, actual malice. You know, go back. Go back and take your medicine.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's just brazen, the push. Because you talk about your client's mother trying to address some of the issues with the school officials, As this was first unfolding, how did the school respond to this parent?
1: With laughter, derisive laughter, essentially, and um, a very quick shutting of the door in the form of a written letter saying from the uh, school principal, CCing various other parties, senior administrators saying, go back to the class, take your medicine, deal with it. And, um, and then they also added various other details. Each, each one implicated them further uh, with liability, saying you have to do all the exercises. Or if you just do some of the exercises, all right, but we're going to deduct you for that. Um, and it's going to reflect itself in the grade, et cetera, et cetera. If you don't go back to the class at all, you're going to fail and you're not going to graduate. And so we're in our papers and me um, we're not afraid to call these people bigots. I don't care and the clients don't care if defendants dress up their bigotry in professional class jargon. They're still bigots and they treated my clients like bigots and that's reflected in the papers and uh, the exhibits and um, it's something they're going to have to deal with.
0: What, why so intransigent? Why, why act like such bullies? I mean, why, why not at least say, you know, we understand some of this material may be controversial, and we know that that, that maybe it, it might be difficult for your son, but do you think that, you know, there's some way we can work out where he can actually take the class, do some of the exercises in a way that wouldn't compromise what, what he believes I mean, why not, why not they respond that way? Well, I don't know. It's hard to speculate
1: about things like that. However, um, some have said that these kinds of ideologies make good people bad um, and one-dimensional. So prior to converting to these sorts of uh, racist ideologies, maybe they would have acted on 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 good instincts um but this this ideology which is all-consuming it turns people into stasi enforcers one-dimensional uh authoritarians and uh is is that what happened in this case i don't know i
0: I i wonder if they really understood that a challenge to this critical race theory, these struggle sessions that they put students to, do they realize that they're on very thin ice? That if they don't get 100% conformity to it, the whole thing could collapse? Do you think they sense that? That's
1: a point we made in the injunction, and it's a point that the Supreme Court has remarked upon. In certain other civic exercises that are innocuous, but they still have an element of coercion in them, Mm -hmm. benign coercion maybe, or maybe not, and like uh, mandatory Pledge of Allegiance exercises or things like that. Would these identity exercises that are preposterous on their face unravel and just be the subject of general mockery if there weren't an element of coercion in them? Uh, that's a good question. That's something to think about. But these things certainly don't work to a certain extent unless they're hidden, because if they were brought to the light of day, it may it may not get past regulators. It may not get past parents, and so they're hidden, and so they they need disguise and they, for the time being,
0: and they need an element of coercion in them. You you know the teacher Catherine Bass is her name like to call her students, my little social justice warriors. Now, what if what if some parents, what if they didn't want their kids to be turned into social justice warriors? I mean, did you have any evidence that other parents were distressed by this pedagogy?
1: Well, I, I guess I will say it's always helpful to look at the demographic. So
0: who are these parents
1: uh, in this particular case?
0: It's a charter school, by the way, yes.
1: Right. It's an inner city charter school and people are going to it because it's free. It's a public, it's public education. And so who are the parents? The parents are more often than not single parents who are working multiple jobs. They're poor and they're easily intimidated by fast talking, can't suit wearing school administrators. So, and they just, parents just don't have the language necessarily, and frankly, neither do more sophisticated people like attorneys often. Uh, They don't even have the language to express what is so objectionable and illegal about this. So the fact that, that these sorts of exercises are ongoing among the poor, the unrepresented, the underprivileged is especially heinous. However, maybe that's the point. Of uh, all of this
0: it's interesting the plaintiff's mother is is African American, right?
1: She is part black, she had her son with a uh, white man who's passed away, and significantly you know there's almost like a literary element to this story the the white man who passed away, the father of the son, and this is all laid out in the papers was an appellate attorney, and he died a very long time ago and so the the racial and ethnic composition of the family is, is detailed in, in the papers to some extent, and so there, there it is and you know just as we were talking about how sexuality and gender is a delicate, complex subject for adolescents. So is race for biracial families. Uh, they have white uncles, they have um, black grandfathers, and so for those people to get labeled in crude binaries by school administrators is it's uh, if you're not biracial, it's probably difficult to uh, imagine how uncomfortable and offensive that is.
0: What degree did her Christianity come into play in her objections to the curriculum?
1: That's, again, described in the papers. And she raised her children according to basic Judeo-Christian principles, the same principles that are espoused, expressed, and are infused in the language of Martin Luther King and his message. Um, And this is detailed in the papers. By the way, if anyone wants to read the papers, the complaint especially, I I hope, is accessible. I tried to make it accessible to non-attorneys. It's posted at schoolhouserights.org, as well as our injunction. So you can read both those documents. The injunction is a little more legalistic. The, the, The complaint is, is a story, which is what this is. But
0: Has been a lot of publicity about the case, locally in Nevada or nationally? I don't think it's gotten a whole lot of local
1: press, and I wonder why. Maybe that's something we can discuss another day. I know Sheldon Adelson just died and uh, three days ago, and he, he apparently owns a lot of the media outlets there. Also, Nevada, like the country at large, is in a state of... Exhaustion from the election. Mm-hmm. Nevada was a battleground state. Also, the campaign was litigated heavily there. Uh, so people in Nevada are just exhausted. I, so I, I, I don't know how much local press it's gotten. Nationally, though, it, it has gotten press, especially on social media. A good expression of of that is the people who have reached out in support, farmers. Mm-hmm. Truck drivers around the country just reaching out and saying, um, Go get
0: them. Way to stand up for yourself. If people want to talk to you, uh, this, this will be our last question, Jonathan. How would they get in touch with you?
1: They could get in touch with you first, <laughs> okay. or they could go to schoolhouserights.org where some of my information is. They could follow the case at Schoolhouse Rights on Twitter. Where we, where we post updates and a few other things. And my law office is in Midtown Manhattan, and you're welcome to look that up and call or send an email. And then finally, all my contact information is laid out in the papers we file, which we then post at schoolhouserights.org, and it has my email address and all that stuff, so you
0: can contact me that way. we'll, we'll have a link to schoolhouserights.org on, on the podcast if people are, are curious more about what is going on because this is certainly not a unique phenomenon. No, it's not. The only
1: thing unique about our case is that mother and son did something about it.
0: Jonathan O'Brien, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.